This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with Rachel Bullman, a wife, mother, Catholic keynote speaker, retreat facilitator, and author. Rachel is a regular contributor to the Word on Fire blog and co-hosts the YouTube show, Meet the Bullmans. She has been married since 2008 to Jason, who was recently ordained to the Order of the Diaconate. Together, they have the gift of seven children. In this episode, Deacon Charlie and Rachel discuss the release of her most recent book, Becoming Wife, which explores what it means for a woman to fulfill this vocation as a calling and a purpose. Rachel shares her personal journey of walking with her husband during his call to the diaconate and offers ideas on how to evangelize simply by being a witness to the joy of the Christian life. Someone who is loved is literally the most powerful person in the world. It doesn't matter what materials you have, what talents you have, what your vocation in life is. If you know that you are loved, you are literally unstoppable. And and for us to know that, and then to know that within your marriage is a really powerful thing because it changes what love is. It actually allows your children and everyone around you to see what authentic love looks like because you've decided to be comforted there. This is Living the Call. Rachel Bowman, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. Such a privilege to have you too. You know, we have, uh, you and I talked initially um, kind of on the setup to uh, to this recording and I, I just love your whole story. And I, I confess that even though you've been, um, you know, a writer, a speaker, you've uh, been an author, you've been featured in a lot of different media that I wasn't very familiar with your story. Uh, and I guess that that's not like crazy, but at the same time, I, you know, maybe pride myself is too strong a word, but I, I, I'm, you know, generally informed of stuff. And when I, when I came across you, I did the old uh, cold call and just reached out to you. So I really appreciate you being, um, you being on the show. We have, uh, we have a lot in common, um, which I'm sure we'll kind of discover mm-hmm. throughout this conversation, but, um, but, uh, I'm reading your book. When did the book come out? Becoming Wife? Came out June 19th, I think was the official date. Wow. So we are fresh upon it. Nice. Right within the promotional yes. window, Rachel. You're good timing on being yeah, on the we show. Are. <laughs> <laughs> so in this show, in this book, rather, which by the way, I have not gotten all the way through, but I am making progress <clears throat> and I've got my highlighter out. It's a really awesome read and it's very accessible. Um, but this book, Becoming Wife, maybe we could just start there because it's so fresh. Um, sure. And I'm sure it ties back to a lot of what your story is to me is unique in so far as I haven't seen a lot of um, books or media generally directed to the idea of, you know, the, the, of wifedom, spousal, the spousal nature of the, of, of the female person within the context of, of matrimony. So I haven't seen a lot of it and I think it's cool in that regard, but then your approach to it has a lot to do with your story. And I'm, I'm just curious of like the genesis to this idea, like where'd it come from? Sure. So my husband was ordained to the diaconate in June of 2022. We're in 2023 right now. He's an infant, so infant deacon. Infant deacon. He's an infant deacon. I'm a deacon, kindergarten deacon. So, We're on yes, our way. exactly. So he's your, he's your infant deacon. Um, and during the formation and in our, our diocese, the wives are strongly encouraged to come to all of the, the retreat weekends. Mm-hmm. And it's six years here. So the first year is like once a quarter um, and it's just a day in that first year, just because it's the discernment year. And then the five years after that are, are one weekend per month. And you have like human formation and then um, academic formation if they're pursuing their master's degree. Um, 
And so we're in the middle of that. And I was very, very excited about going with him to do all of these things, because what they had seen is that when the wives are not going, that there was a a bit of a drifting apart of that couple because they weren't having the same kind of conversation, the same kind of formation, and then trying to trying to bridge that gap for them. So, so excited to go. And there were a few times that we were able to interact with with the couples that were about to be ordained before we were then, you know, the the senior cohort. And then there were times that we had we were interacting with the younger cohorts, the ones that were coming through um, after us. And one of the things that was that was pretty pretty much the highlight of almost every conversation with the wives is is you know what's what's our purpose of being here. Mm. You know, we kind of feel forgotten because we're not, unless we're going to pursue our degree, why are we, why are we coming? Mm. And other than the fact that the wives do have to sign off on it, you know, the, the diaconate is called the vocation within a vocation. So you have to take care of your, your vocation to marriage before you can pursue this vocation to the diaconate. And then there was just this constant question, you know, why am I coming every weekend? It feels like some of these things aren't necessarily geared towards me. And why, what's my purpose in being here? And, and so out of that, I started to look for some media or literature to help answer those questions. Because we, as with some of the wives, we had done a couple of book studies. It's like, maybe I could find something that we could do on the side together. And I couldn't find anything. Hmm. Um, there was a really, a, a book from like the 90s, I think, that was, I think might've been titled Wives of the Begin. And, but it was just general questions. You know, how was your formation? And then the wives would answer it or, you know, what's, it wasn't a whole lot not to the depth that I really wanted it to go. I really wanted to explore what does this mean to be a spouse? What does it mean to be a wife? And initially I really wanted it to be for wives of deacons, but we, we broadened the net, you know, so that hopefully this could, and I think that it will, if, if, if a woman is able to receive it, whether they're married for many years or they're, you know, just engaged or thinking about the fact that maybe one day they'll be married. um, I think they'll find something in there. So that's, that's really where it came from was during the formation for the diaconate. And you do, um, obviously the book is not that narrow in the sense of just for deacons' wives, although that would be Mm -hmm. a great follow-on or like a little bit of a primer that you could kind of attach or appendix to this, just really focused on that. Um, But it is broader and it is for, it, it kind of, you know, brings up a number of interesting, you know, questions about just the dynamic of the sacrament of matrimony itself. One of the things I've been reflecting on, because I too have been, you know, thinking about, um, you know, what matrimony is and how we live out the sacrament in the world. And what I found is that it seems that we have a lot of developed thinking around, you know, the Eucharist as an example, symbolizes a meal, but it actually is an encounter with the real person of Jesus. Baptism symbolizes a washing, but it actually does purify you. And then with matrimony, it's like it symbolizes this union of of one flesh, but it actually is this one flesh. And that part of like, what is this one flesh has a lot to do with the kind of questions that your book gets at, which is like, what what is the, the, the wife and what is the husband? And I found at least in maybe contemporary things, or maybe I just haven't come across it. There's not a lot there that kind of gets at the heart of right. what is that manifestation of this sort of one flesh in the world. Yeah, and I think that we just don't, you know, you can go to a, a bookstore, any bookstore, a secular bookstore, go to a Christian bookstore, you're going to find a ton of books on like being a parent. Like, how do I be a good dad? How do I be a good mom? And I find a lot of stuff on like, if, if you're talking about filial identity, being a daughter or son of Christ, you're going to find a lot of that stuff there. 
but we just kind of skip right over <laughs> this whole notion yeah. of being a spouse. Yeah. And and we don't spend a lot of time there. It's just within the practicality of the church in pre-Cana, you know, it's a weekend or you're just coming once a quarter before you get married, something like that. And just kind of, hey, get married and raising kids. And right. you don't really have a lot that kind of gives you that target of um, matrimony. And, you know, in the catechism, it says that the only two only two sacraments that are there for the grace of others mm. is holy orders and matrimony. Mm. Which is just an incredible thought, you know, like if we if if within these in these two particular sacraments really is evangelization of the church, of the world for the church, then we should have more on it. There's a great work for, by Cardinal Scola where he talks a little bit. He talks a lot about marriage in it. I can't remember the title of it off my head, top of my head. But if you just look up Cardinal Scola and matrimony, I know that it'll come up. And and then Ratzinger, which I talk a little bit about in the book, he he has a, a fundamental anthropology, and he says it's the fundamental pattern of the person, basically, mm-hmm. that every person is called to be child, spouse, and parent, and that when we pursue those things in that particular order, mm. the way that Christ has then laid them out, because it it's a mirror of the Trinity, then we are able to be most fully human, like most fully alive, and so if that's true then we really have to understand every facet of that fundamental pattern. And so for me, I knew that there needed to be more out there about spousality. There needed to be more in the world that talks about, you know, what does it mean to be a wife? What does it mean to really practice self-gift and matrimony? Um, what does it mean to say yes to this? And so that's where it, it is. The, it really is, it is the fullness of the sort of human express of the expression of being, of being human. Have you discovered more about who you are through your spousal relationship? In other words, I'm sure you've learned a lot more about your husband and you've learned about being sure. a couple, but you've just, dis- have you discovered more about yourself? Oh my gosh. So much more. <laughs> a lot of it that, you know, I cringe at, you know, you find out things about yourself and you're like, oh crap, I didn't know that was an issue, right. but here it is. Is that really me? <laughs> and then, and then there's things that you, you figure out about yourself that, wow, I can really stretch in that way. Mm. That when it's really done in, in, in the spirit of love, when it's done with, with that as, as the modus, the modus, or, you know, what, what's my motive is to love, then I can do that. The things that I used to think were such a challenge now become, um, an act of love and it becomes a lot easier, but you do discover yourself a lot. You know, I, I was talking with a, a friend of mine that had just gotten married a few months ago and I said, how's it going? And, and she kind of laughed and said, we're just kind of getting used to it. <laughs> so right, it's like a new puppy, it's a different animal, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was your first um, example? I know you, you have a, again, super interesting background and I'll let you tell it, but I can at least, uh, you know, kind of offer the Cliff Notes version of, uh, you know, you were born in the Philippines and you were adopted by a couple mm-hmm. who raised you here in the States. But, you know, what was your first sort of experience or understanding of this concept of wife? or spouse in general, sure. like the, the first maybe image of that that you can recall. Sure. So, you know, like you said, I was, I was adopted. When I was adopted, I was adopted into an Assemblies of God family. Yeah. And so my dad actually discovered his call to, to be a pastor, a preacher in the Philippines. He was over there just to kind of help put up tents for revivals, um, which is really interesting because they were going there to to evangelize to the Catholics and to, to bring them in into the, mm-hmm. the Assemblies of God. Um, so he's over there doing that, experiences a call to to become a preacher and pursues it, 
gets ordained, ordains and everything. And so my first image of what spousality was, was my dad and my mom. Mm. Now you fast forward 10 years later after they bring me to the United States and I'm adopted and they get divorced. And mm. it was because of some infidelity. My dad married his, his wife, um, which was a good friend of our family. My mom later found a gentleman that she married, a wonderful man. And you look at these two things and that was my first image mm. of what marriage is. Mm. You know, my first image of marriage is a man and woman that have now sworn fidelity to one another. But for, if a circumstance comes along that tells you that it's no longer love, quote unquote, it's no longer a need to be, you know, faithful to, then, then we can move on and we can find a new spouse. Um, mm. So I experienced that at 10 years old uh, and then go forward. And both of my brothers who are older than I am, and now have both been married twice, both been divorced twice. Um, and I just remember thinking at one point, like, well, if this is it, like, then what, what, what am I doing then? Sure. I mean, I shouldn't even try to think about marriage because if marriage really isn't forever, then why, why try? Why try to pursue that? So I think a lot of young people feel that now. Like a lot of people in their 20s and early 30s are like, I mean, no one stays together anymore. Marriage isn't forever anymore um, because the label for marriage has been moved around so much over the last you know, couple of decades. In the book, you mentioned that when you first met your husband, you were kind of annoyed by him and the way he looked at you. Do you think, <laughs> yeah. do you think some of that, and of course he was looking at you lovingly, or at least, you know, clearly mm -hmm. it was attracted. That's a good thing. Um, right. Do you think that maybe some of what you mentioned is that experience of kind of what good is this was maybe at the heart of why you had that kind of response or was he just annoying? I don't know, <laughs> you know. Oh gosh, no, I, I for sure. And I think that no one up until that point, because you know, when I was an infant and my, my adoptive father saw me for the first time, he always tells that story with such passion and so much love for that moment, knowing that he saw me mm. and saw his daughter. Mm. But I wasn't old enough to experience that gaze, like to reciprocate that gaze yeah, beautiful. to him. Yeah. And now, whenever I met Jason and I was like 24, 25 years old, and that time, you know, he looked at me and it made me really uncomfortable. And I remember asking him, why are you looking at me like that? And he was like, oh, because I think you're beautiful. And, and it was because I had never had anyone behold me like that, just to sit in someone's gaze. And I mean, the gaze of Christ is like that. When the gaze of Christ really sits on you, it is super uncomfortable unless you're going to let him love mm. you. And that's, that's the biggest challenge for the human person is to let God love you. You literally can't do anything else in this world unless you let him love you. And so I remember just being completely disarmed by that. And then many years later, feeling like that, that gaze wasn't there anymore or, or that I couldn't feel it, quote unquote, and, and praying about it and the Lord being like, well, it, it's not uncomfortable anymore because you believe it. And, and someone who is loved is literally the most powerful person in the world. It doesn't matter what materials you have, what talents you have, what your vocation in life is. If you know that you are loved, you are literally unstoppable. Mm. And, and for us to know that, and then to know that within your marriage is a really powerful thing because it changes what love is. It actually allows your children and everyone around you to see what authentic love looks like because you've decided to be comforted there. Yeah. The idea of being beheld by a lover, right? I mean, it's just an extraordinary concept. And the great irony, of course, is that we spend so much of our lives, um, maybe some of us are fortunate not to, but, but, you know, I did spend so much of our lives doubting the love of others 
when we're constantly held in this loving gaze by our creator himself, like all the time, 24 seven. In fact, even, right. you know, at the moment of our creation, it was out of love, right? That we were created. Right. And yet we often, you know, look for that love or replacements to that counterfeits to that in so many different ways. And we're kind of consistently disappointed by it, you know? And, and so right. to see that in another person is such a, an awesome reminder of the ultimate beholder of us who is our creator. Right. It's so true. And I mean, every time, uh, one of the things that, that if, if you were able to look at like all of the cards that we've written to each other over the years, you know, that's one of the things that we constantly are saying to one another. Like, I'm so thankful that I'm able to entrust myself to you and entrusting myself to my spouse has now allowed me to entrust myself more to the father. Mm. Um, and it's just this beautiful imagery of, of how God loves me, that he would give me this, this man, this spouse to love me in a fraction of that, that way. That's a big one for me. And I think it's a big part of the spouse of the one flesh faith. Let's call it that it's, is this, um, this idea, this, this sense, value, virtue of gratitude, uh, you know, mm. I, I know it is for me. I had, um, Carl Keating on the show, not, not too long ago. And he, he, um, we're talking a little bit about his spirituality kind of tied to the outdoors. He's like a big hiker and goes like all these crazy like Grand Canyon things. And I asked him if that experience had changed his spirituality in some sense, because he came to it later in life. And he said that he, he recounted this experience where he kind of was walking one day in the Grand Canyon or somewhere. And he stopped at this meadow and he was all by himself. And <clears> there was not another soul for a hundred miles. And that he had this like wave of gratitude just like sweep over him that was like <laughs> mystical, as close to mysticism as he, he's a very cerebral dude. So like as close to mysticism as he's comfortable describing. But I really identified with that sense of gratitude and I've come to know it in a lot of the interactions that I've had with my wife, just this moment of like just being thankful and for, you know, because marriage to me is kind of like a buddy system to get to heaven, right? So it's like your right. person whose spiritual task it is and job and duty and responsibility it is to get you home. And just the idea of like, wow, you paired me up with a person that I can live my life with and who's got my back and who's going to help me get there to eternity is just something to be eminently grateful for. Right. And I mean, the world really, if we, if we can actually make gratitude, just, just our, our, our hermeneutic for everything, mm. then we're going to be able to overcome a lot of the things that the enemy tries to distract us by, because that's the, the enemy's language is ingratitude. You know, he is very good about trying to get you to look at the sure. person that you don't have, sure. that you forget about the 80 that you have. And so that that whole experience of just looking at something that is beyond yourself, whether it be the forest, looking at a sunset, looking at your spouse, you look at something that is beyond yourself because there is an objective nature to the beauty that God uses to arrest our lives. Mm. And so when we're able to realize that and be open to that, then it can really open up this, this feeling of gratitude, which is there is nothing that can stand in that way if gratitude doesn't just become something that you do every now and then, but it becomes a habit of your life. The other thing that I dig about the book is how kind of countercultural it is. You know, the idea of mm. becoming a wife. I think most, you know, female focused books written right now are like becoming CEO or becoming, I don't know, right. 
you know, the, the next so right. the next social influencer. I have no idea. But girl boss. Yeah. Yeah, girl boss, right? <laughs> the future is female. When like and, and right. I'm curious yes. of maybe women you know, your interactions particularly maybe around right this book, but just in general, because I know you be considering and, matrimony. And kind of preach and teach right. in the context of girl boss, future is female, all of that stuff. Yeah. What are the things that you most consistently run into that you're going, yeah, but you know, consider this. You see what I'm saying? Sure. Like yeah, I mean, I think one of the main things that a lot of a lot of women are asking after and, and this is not at all to, to tout the way that I speak or the things that I, I've been I've learned over the years. But one of the questions that I always get asked is why? Why do you talk the way that you do? Mm. Like, why do you where did how did this happen? Why do you speak this way? And I, I think that a lot of times what they're hearing is a philosophy and a theology from a female speaker that they're not used to hearing, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so I am, I am just a product of the things that I've learned and the things that, that the Lord has given me. So I just tell them, you know, you have to just open up yourself to learn things that are really challenging. I mean, and the thing is, is that if we're only reading um, the, the really freely notions of things, if we're only reading you know, how to become a, a girl boss, how to become the CEO of a company. And we're not reading about the, the, the primordial questions of the person. Why am I? Who am I? What am I? Where am I going? You're, you're not going to be able to do any of those things with a longing, with a, with a lasting impression on the world. Mm. And so I think that, that a lot of young women, women in general, really need to kind of wrestle with those questions because at the end of the day, when you, you get back home after working your nine to five and doing all these beautiful things in the world of industry and, and, and technological things, you're still going to long to be loved. And so I would tell the person, the, the young woman, whoever, all of these women, I'm like, you need to go and read some John Paul II, go read mm. some Joseph Ratzinger, go sit down and wrestle with love and responsibility, which is a horrible, horrible read, but so, so worth it, especially if you don't have any kind of philosophical background. Yeah. Um, go and sit down with these great works, which are, are, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, are old white men telling you about the anthropology of women. And it's profound and beautiful. And we have to open ourselves to hear that. And so sitting with these kind, these kind of thinkers and letting them explain to you what they, what I believe that the Lord has given them to give to us, um, kind of changes your hermeneutic. It makes you realize that you are no longer equating your worth with what you do, but you have to figure out who you are and learn to be. It's what you call in the secular world, a chip change, you know, it's changing the chip. A lot of times mm -hmm. we, you know, we kind of look at um, knowledge of any kind, you know, as something that is sort of didactic, right? You get somebody, they say something that becomes part of like some corpus of intelligence that you have. But we oftentimes don't think about it. It's like, oh, no, I have to reboot the system, right? I need to like pull the chip out and put another processor in that's like a different thing altogether, which changes right. the way that I look at any and all information, right? And when you read guys like that, and I get what you're saying, they kind of read in stereo, right? It's hard to, it, it, they're, they're like, these are master works, but they require like some serious intentionality to get through them. Mm -hmm. But when you do that and you're really open 
it actually can change a chip, which is it changes the way that you perceive like just things in general. Right. And so reacquainting people with, you know, folks or acquainting them if they're not with authors and writers like that can bring about that. And, And sometimes that's what needs to happen because you know, all we're doing is kind of being sort of being programmed in a particular way along a particular line. And sometimes like, you know, interacting with stuff like those, those authors kind of shifts you into a different way of perceiving things. And and, and that's how you can get at these other kind of ideals. Yeah. And I really, I think it's called, um, I like to call it like an incarnational or sacramental reality. Mm. And if you can use that as, as the basis of your reality, incarnation of Christ, seeing everything through the incarnation, the sacramental life of the church, seeing everything through that lens, it literally changes everything because that reality is present in everything that you're doing. It's present in the music that you listen to, in the movies that you watch, the literature that you love. It's the same, same grand story that's told throughout all of time. But being able to have that incarnational lens that sacramental reality be the the vocation and that what you're looking at the world through it changes everything. Do you interact um, a lot with non-Catholics with your work? I do a bit. You know, I think that um, the place that I really get to to do that a lot in is um, through sports with my kids. You know, my kids actually play a lot of um, soccer. And so often a lot of the people that are on the the teams, you know, the families are not profoundly Catholic. You know, I think, I don't think we've been on any teams where the parents are Catholic so far in that space. And then when I'm traveling, a lot of times I get to interact with a lot of non-Catholics in that space. Do you enjoy that or do you like just your kind of ministerial outlook? Do you, do you like kind of bringing Catholics along more into the fullness of their faith? Or do you like kind of the ground zero work of talking to somebody who's not from that? Because I know you're a convert, so you've got, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I really love them both because I think that um, what I have found to be the common language, it's just kind of like what we've already talked about is, is that love is the common language and the incarnation of Christ is the common language. So we can, we can try to, to, bridge the gap of the real presence and try to bridge the gap of the seven sacraments that the Catholic church has that no one else has. But what really gets them to realize the openness of this and, and to, to even discuss those kind of things is them looking at me and going, why the heck do you look like someone who's loved? Yeah. Like, why do you act like someone who's loved? Yeah. The other thing that was really beautiful this past weekend, I was at a philosophy seminar last week. And, and there were quite a few non-Catholics at this seminar. And one of the young women there, I said, so what are you going to do with this? What we've talked about this week. And she's like, I don't know. She says, there's so much to wrestle with. And then she said, but I hope you will take this as a compliment. I have never met anyone quite as serious about their faith as Catholics are. And she's like, for you guys to wrestle with the intellectual life, to wrestle with your spirituality, to stop in the middle of the day to go to daily mass or to pray the liturgy of the hours, there is nothing else that convicts me more than watching all of you live your faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The ministry of like just being a witness is, is huge. I had lunch yesterday with um, a guy I haven't seen in a few years. I used to work with him, not Catholic, not faith, not of any sort of faith that I can sort of discern. Um, but he, he was born into a, into a Catholic uh, faith. And yesterday, this was a business meeting. We sat down for lunch and as, you know, I asked him the question, like, so, you know, how's your family? How are you? And before I walked in this meeting, as I do for any business meeting, I, 
you know, I asked God to, to, to take the meeting over and make it his, you know. And he starts telling me, basically, it started, a, a, you know, to, to share. And when he stopped sharing, it was like 45 minutes later. And over the course <laughs> of that period of time, told me about all of these really, you know, dark things that he had been through, divorce, a breakup, finding out some very difficult things about his father and things that he was accused of doing and like all of these things. And one of his children is coming out as trans and like all of these different things that have been really weighing on him. And, you know, when I gave him some thoughts on what he had shared, obviously, and then he asked me, he's like, you know, how do you do what you do? He's like, how do you kind of live this, this life, this sort of integrated life, this undivided life um, is what he said, what he asked, which I thought was really interesting. And I just answered God and he, and he said, is there any way to do it without him? And I said, no, there isn't, <laughs> you know, and, but, it, but it was interesting because it's exactly what you just described, which is there is no theological conversation, no philosophical premise. There is no catechetical teaching. There's just this, like, I've seen what you're doing and I haven't seen you in a while, but I've seen what you're doing. And what is it that lets you do what you do because I can't, right? And right. We, we forget, how, and, and of course I can't either, it's not me, but we right. forget how powerful that can be. Yeah, and I mean, and just the joy of the Christian, you know, is just so disarming for some people. You know, I, I, I think that, um, that even in, with, with our kids, you know, my youngest is their two-year-old twins and their, our oldest is 12. And so my 10 and my 12-year-old are really starting to feel the, what they think is isolation, but really the solitude of living a really devout Christian life, mm. you know? And so they often wrestle with it, not knowing what they're wrestling with. And so to know that there is joy here, to know that there is joy in this life that is really completely countercultural. I mean, the world is going to tell you all kinds of things, but for us to really f live this, that means suffering. And so for, for that guy to ask you, you know, like, can we do it without God? Because I know that if I decide to let God in, that that means that vulnerability, it means suffering, it means facing the things that I don't want to face. Yeah. And it's, it sucks sometimes, but it's pretty amazing in the end. <laughs> yeah. After, after I told him that, he said, I just kind of feel like something is really missing. And I said, yeah, there's a guy named St. Thomas, uh, St. Augustine, mm -hmm. who described that as a God-shaped hole, right? Because mm -hmm. in, in, in the, there, I don't know if, if I read it the right way, but it seemed like there was some comfort in the knowledge that he wasn't by himself, right? The fact that, yeah, there is a solitude in this life, which is correct, but there's also this this sense of, of solidarity with so many people before us who struggle with the very same things, who come to these conclusions in a variety of different ways, and, and that there's answers to things, right? Because that's what I think a lot of people are looking for, you know, answers of meaning, of, of you know, reasons for things. And, and, and there is, there are answers. And, we've, and people have gone through those same questions in the past, and there's some sense of solidarity. At least that's what I read in him you know, uh, right. when, when we have this conversation. Yeah. That you're never doing this alone, that somebody else has, has gone through it. So it's not, you know, one of the most powerful things that I remember seeing at a, um, I think it was a youth conference, but the speaker had gotten all the kids together and said, you know, raise your hand if you've ever struggled with X, Y, and Z. Mm. And so these kids raised their hand and, um, 
And then he had them all come to the front and he goes, so you at some point believed that you were the only one who struggled with this. And they're like, yeah. And they're like, well, look around, like all these people have struggled with the same thing. And so we're never struggling alone. You know, I think that that's, that's another, one of the most beautiful things about the spiritual life is that it's always the same lie. You know, it's always the same lie that you're not loved, that God's not, not a good father and that you're going to be left alone. And it's always, it just has different clothes on, you know, maybe today it feels like you're a failure at your job or you're a bad dad or you're, you know, you're not a good friend, all these things, but it always goes back to that same, that same root. And, and to know that you never have to do that alone is really just a profound comfort. You know, and part of that not doing it alone is sort of the communities that we belong to. You now, in addition to being obviously part of the, of the church, you also belong to a fraternity, confraternity, sorority, I don't know what you would call it, of, um, you know, diaconal wives. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that has an effect in, or some effect on kind of our, our spiritual walk, our faith experience, et cetera. And since it's relatively fresh for you, can you talk a little bit about how that has, you know, colored your sort of faith vision in whatever way it has? Sure. I know that in our in our cohort in particular, and I think that most cohorts are like this, um, you have, of course, it's it's kind of like a great microcosm of the church because we had all of these different backgrounds, yeah. different cultures, different ages, different um, exposures to uh, theology, to philosophy, different exposures to church teachings, um, but all with one goal in mind, which was to determine whether or not they were called to the diaconate. And, and man, it really, really kind of bound us all together. And I mean, there were, there were quite a few people in our, I think there were 19 in the end that were ordained. And out of that 19, I mean, there's, there's probably five or six women there that I know that in any, any given moment, I can call them and they would drop everything to come be with me, to pray with me, whatever. And, and I think especially for women that that having a sorority of women around them, having a, a community of women is a hard thing to come by. I think that it's because of many, many things, but also just trying to take on the persona of, of, of being a male in this society, you know, trying to somehow become masculine in the world um, kind of makes us feel like we don't, we don't need that. Like I'm, I can throw off all the, all of the, the trappings of community. I don't need a church. I don't need a man. I don't need girlfriends. I can just do this on my own. And so to really be able to really kind of find that within the diaconate formation has been a really, really beautiful thing because I'm in the midst of a life where, you know, I've got six kids running around that are fairly young, trying to juggle that sports, our our commitments to the church, the things that we know that the Lord is calling us to do and doing all of that by yourself is impossible. You can't. Do just, just the fact, I think we touched on this the last time that we talked, but just the fact that that you are a young family, that you yourselves are young, certainly from from U.S. diaconal perspectives, maybe not global mm-hmm. diaconal, um, is sort of in some ways surprising to me. And I'm very, I'm very hardened by it because, you know, a lot of people, um, a lot of couples and the men who hear that diaconal call m- might prolong it or defer it or not, you know, not chase it down because they feel that they're not there right. yet. Their kids are too young or whatever it is. So, but I think that that is such a great gift as well. Yeah, you are part of this community and they have your back. But the kind of gifts that you and your family and your marriage can bring to the world in that kind of diaconal state, I think is huge. 
And I think that there, maybe there's a lot of similar vocations that have been either self-snuffed out or discouraged or whatever um, because of age or chronology of children or whatever it may be. So it, right. it kind of surprised me when I first heard that that you you had just gone through the process and your husband had been ordained. Yeah, and I mean, it would be it would definitely be remiss to say that the enemy was not really ticked off when we started the the whole formation process. And everyone would tell us the the cohort before us they were like, "Listen, as you get closer to ordination, oh. it's going to get really hard. Like the enemy is going to be very mad at you. There's going to be all kinds of things that happen." And I mean, really just unexplainable things occurring. And and I remember looking at my husband. We had this, uh, like a statue of um, the Blessed Mother above our television that had been there for, I don't know, 10 years. And one weekend that we were away, it kept falling. And so we were away at formation and it, it fell off the counter. Finally, the fourth time it fell, it broke. And... Um, and we were both just kind of like, that is the strangest thing, but just really, and then very minuscule things that don't seem so supernatural or so, so out of the ordinary would happen and would make us go, gosh, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. You know, maybe this is not the right thing. Um, just and questioning whether or not, you know, we, we could survive this. Could we survive going through ordination? My husband questioning, you know, what his call would be. Is he going to be comfortable with preaching from the pulpit? Is he going to be comfortable with performing the sacraments that have been entrusted to the deacon to do? Are we going to be able to do this? Are our children going to question, you know, why do mom and dad do all these things for the church? It feels like they neglect us. And that has not come up, thanks be to God. And we're, we're doing everything we can to keep that from, from coming up. But those questions come and for young people, especially, I mean, we've had several young adults that have just gotten married reach out to us via social media and they'll say, hey, I really want to pursue the call to diaconate. One young man reached out and said that he was strongly discouraged by his diocese. Mm. And thankfully in our diocese, that was not the case. I mean, they were, they were def- the first question that they asked when we walked in the room was, how old are you guys? I mean, we know that we have your whole pamphlet here, but how old are you? And so that was the first question. And I know that that is disarming, but man, the world needs to be disarmed. The world needs to know that there are young adults that feel this call that want to do this with their lives and know that there is absolutely no other way that they can find the joy that they desire without it. And the great, and the diaconate is really beautiful for that. For sure. And the great gift that again, younger families can have on the church through the diaconate, right? They don't have to mm-hmm. be necessarily mutually exclusive. Now, that's not to say that every young couple um, that feels that calling is is you know confirmed in that, right? Because right. I always kind of equate it to to getting <laughs> married or finding your spouse, which is you know you can be totally in love with the guy or with the girl, but if they don't if they don't want to marry you, you're not getting married, no matter what you think, right? The that path is, and in some ways, or in most ways, the church does confirm that that calling but there is a lot of those stories and and like you i've had a lot of young men maybe not not so much as a couple but just when i speak you know i I speak in a lot of like uh i speak men's conferences and things like that but i've had you know people walk up to me men in particular walk up to me who are maybe in their you know 30s early 30s say like you know i've kind of thought about the diaconate but i don't think i'm old enough and i was like well you got to actually look at what these things say because nobody's you know the only right. you know stipulation that I'm aware of, at least universally, is that you have to be 35 before you get ordained. Um, right. Obviously, dioceses will have different things, but it it, it really is it, it's been a, a kind of continuing conundrum to me. And I've talked about it on the show a number of times, but I, but not usually with 
a deacon or a deacon's wife um, about, you know, this, this challenge that we have um, where just the church in general, you know, is, is kind of shrinking. It's becoming much more diverse every day. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of these, um, a lot of this discouragement, I think, is, is, you know, is kind of a counter movement to what <coughs> could otherwise be a solution to some of this. Um, and I don't, I don't get it. I mean, I understand the idea of like, Hey, you got young kids. You have to do, you do have to have sacrifices. Obviously I'm sure you missed a lot of soccer games, you know, going through your formation program. But you know, if it's a calling, then it, you know, bears out that we should follow that through. It's true. And I mean, I think that that it's it's a good wake up call for the church Mm. to, to remember that Christ, when he died was 33 years old. That Mary, when she received the call of the Annunciation, you know, was a teenager, a young teenager. And so these callings are are available to us when we realize that maturity is based on closeness to Christ. It's not based on your age. And so we're we're we're, you know, seeing the, the canonization of young adults. We're seeing all of these things occur because it is possible for young people to find their ways to to the altar. And I think that um for hopefully we're all raising those next generations that are going to get younger and younger in their reality of knowing who they are in Christ and that being able to what hopefully changes the tide in the world is to know that these are the the young people these are the young adults these are the the families that are changing what what the world thinks is is joy and where it comes from but I also think it's about the recognition of gifts and the variety of gifts that are out there yes. for for example like you have this um you know, a Protestant background, uh, would it be safe to say kind of the evangelical Protestant background? Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, every evangelical Protestant um, now Catholic that I've ever met has been somebody who has been an extraordinary gift to me and in some cases to the church at large. And, you know, having that, that path into the church, while maybe other people don't share it or might say, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Nevertheless, can produce a ton of fruit, right? And it's it, mm-hmm. in, so I think to, it's also just this question of kind of opening up the aperture and being open to the various gifts that people can bring, you know, into for the sure. equation. Like for you, what were what are some of those in that grounding that you had in this kind of evangelical background that you know you feel maybe have blossomed or flourished in, in your experience now as a Catholic? Oh gosh, that's really funny because when I became Catholic, I. Uh... I tried to throw off all the trappings of my Protestant life. And that included like all ministry. Like I was like, I'll never sing again, never write again. Like I won't ever do any of those things that I used to do. Um, that didn't last very long because the Lord had a chokehold on me. So that oh. for, for maybe a year into it. And I was like, oh, I should probably write again because there were just too many things that were stirring in my heart. But I think with the knowledge that the, the church has brought to me, which is a really in-depth intellectual life that I never, I don't I think I ever could have found in, in Protestantism has really changed the way that I talk, the way that I write, um, the way that I see the world. It, it, there's no chance that I would have ever been able to, to think the way that I think had it not been for the church. Oh. And your, but, but your love of scripture and some of the things that you had mm-hmm. as a Protestant have those have definitely yeah. bloomed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, scripture at a completely different life, you know, it's a completely, I honest, honestly, Christ has a different tone in scripture than he did 
whenever I was Protestant. Mm. Um, whenever I was Protestant, I would often read him with kind of a, a tone of like turn or burn, mostly because mm. that was that was the tone that I had grown up with. So anytime that he would speak, it was very kind of harsh. It was very assured. It was very it was kind of aggressive. Um, and and probably after after I became Catholic and this whole idea of the incarnation and his love for for humanity, I can't tell you there's not a time that I don't read his words and I imagine him with tears in his eyes. Mm. Just imagine his longing for humanity yeah. and and how vast of a change that is. And then what a gift that has been for me and my ministry, scripture being the thing that shapes the way that I that I've gotten to know who Christ is. Um because that's something that, you know, is not really, there's not a lot of, of that in, within Catholicism. The Catholic Church is the most Bible-steeped religion in the world, but we often take it for granted as Catholics. And so to just sit down and really kind of open it up, I'm very thankful for, for you know, the Bible in a year and for everything that, that Jeff Cavins has done for, for the church in that way. And it's been such a gift, and we really, really need to continue uh, cracking it open and making it part of our daily lives. Just this morning, uh, I was having coffee with my wife. We have this like tradition of coffee time in the morning. It's the very first thing we do. And then we pray when we do some fitness and then uh, we get to work. And it's kind of the trinity of the, you know, the, the morning trinity. But just this mm -hmm. morning, you know, you could tell with your spouse, like something's off, right? So, and she's been overwhelmed and exhausted these last few days. And just this morning, I could tell she was just kind of bummed out, not joyful, waking up to the degree that she normally is. And, you know, my little, you know, at a girl's attempts were just failing miserably this morning. <laughs> and at one point I was like stopped in the middle of coffee time and I, I went over and I grabbed my lectionary for Sundays. And I said, let's look at the scripture for this weekend. Cause at my parish, I, I preach like pretty much every weekend. And, I, and sometimes I don't know if I'm preaching awesome. until like when I walk into the sacristy. So, um, <laughs> so I was like, let's look at, let's look at, uh, at the scripture. And I, I kid you not, literally from like the first reading, we got through the first reading, second reading, when we were like, you know, somewhere in the, in the second reading, just something happened, which is not me. It's not her. It's not intellectual. It's not emotional. It's not, it's just, it's the living word of God, literally, right? Exchange between persons that he was present in a special way. And it brought to, to light to me just the reality of scripture by itself and how much mm -hmm. we do take that as Catholics for granted because we're, we were kind of spoiled for choice with so many different things. <laughs> but the primacy of, you know, that, that word and how critical it is, but it changed the entire mood. Like, I mean, it was like we, end, this is a half hour period of time all told from beginning to end, right? So, but it just reminded me yet again, as old as I am, that of the importance of what you just described. Yeah, I mean, we can't we can't get away from it. That's a great place to start. It's just looking at the readings. If you're if you're not familiar with how or you know the Bible somehow is like really intimidating for you, then start with the readings. Get get a lectionary and start with all of the readings. You can go to the USCCB website and look them up every day. You could download an app. There's tons of Bible apps out there that you could do that with. The other thing is the liturgy of the hours. You know, to be able to steep yourselves in Scripture through the liturgy of the hours. And the Liturgy of the Hours is repetitive by nature. So you're going to get to know the scriptures and make them even more a part of your life because they're part of your prayer life. Preach it. Are you, do, you, um, do you guys pray Liturgy of the Hours together? 
Or you do it all We do. Separately. We, yeah. we pray it together and we pray it with the kids. And it's pretty uh, awesome. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Do you do the office of readings? We do the office of readings. Yeah. I mean, I'm and sure you just, as like a, you know, a kind of theology philosophy junkie must love that because oh, you, yeah. you kind of come across as like, you know, I don't know, Theodosius of whatever. And it's like, <laughs> right. what? And then these guys are like writing stuff that makes your head spin. And it's amazing. <laughs> They're like, who are these people? It's true. And you know, you talk about the Holy Spirit working. I guarantee that there is not a time that I've read the Office of Readings and been like, I mean, are we sure that this repeats every year? Because this really is for me exactly. today. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it does every year. So Yeah, it's a great, great, great case that we have, um, you know, yeah. available to us, to us as a church. Um, wh- one last, um, you know, kind of question along these same lines of, of kind of diaconal uh, things together is ministerially. And I know mm-hmm. that you guys are, you know, kind of, you know, you're, you're brand new to this and you're kind of doing it, but, um, and, and I know that it varies in a variety of different places. He talk a little bit about the ministries that, that you do maybe together or that you're discovering that have this kind of together quality that, that sort of you know, fortified by your, by your spousal bond. Sure. Um, one of the most beautiful things that I've been able to experience since, since he became a a deacon was that first mass that he was able to be on the altar. What was really, really beautiful about the day was that two of our boys were also, also altar serving. Oh, nice. Um, a seminarian who we had become really good friends with was also the, the priest on the altar. And then, I was cantering that day as well. Oh, wow. And so it was just this, this whole like Bullman takeover. (laughs) And it was just so beautiful. And I remember our friend, um, Father Blake brought us up at the end of the mass. And he just said, you know, I just want to bring them up because this is great because he just became a deacon. And and he had all of, we had all of our kids up there. And he said, um, he was just like, you know, look at this. He's like, "They're, they're very young kids up here. And you have this young couple and they just came out of six years of formation. Like, if you look at this and you're like, they're insane, you're right. But you also need to know that this is possible this for is you. This is possible, yeah. Um, so the mass, because of our involvement with it, um, my girls are going to be hopefully in the kids' choir soon. And then our boys are the altar servers. And then with my husband on the, on the altar, it's just this really beautiful way for us to minister together, which is qu- quite obvious because we all you know, take part in that ministry just by attending mass, but it's really seen in a very magnified way now. The other things that have been kind of a beautiful and joyful surprise are uh, his homilies, Mm. you know, being able to hear them and experience them before he shares them with the world has been really, really beautiful. Um, Baptisms, to be able to go up there with him or my sons be able to go up there with them and assist him while he's, he's doing the baptisms has been really just it's, it's just such a gift. Mm. Um, the other thing is having praying liturgy hours because we were praying liturgy hours before he was ordained. But at the end of the liturgy hours, if you're praying it in a community where you, you have someone who is ordained there, if you're not familiar, they will then be able to give a blessing. And if not, then you just close out the liturgy of the hours with the normal prayer. That's right. So the first time that we did it and he was ordained, was just it was life altering you know we're sitting oh. there and we're like we go to pray the prayer and we're like may and then he goes wait and i was like oh the lord be with you <laughs> yeah, yeah so 
So that's pretty amazing. And one of my friends, um, I was speaking to one of my friends who's a sister and I said, I said, you know, it was like, he, he has to go in there at night because the kids won't go to bed until they get a blessing from dad. And she said to me, she goes, you have no idea what he has no idea what he's doing for your family. Um, and it was like, you know, these, these are the things that you'll reap for many, many years to come. You have no idea of the seeds that are being sown in those actions. So, um, that, that has definitely been probably one of the, just being able to, to take part in, in that ontological change that happens that has been shared with us in a really beautiful way. Amen. Yeah. So it's a, a a radical configuration to Christ, um, which happens and it's, and it really happens. It's not just a, not just a symbol. Yeah. I, I tell this, um, I think it's funny. Maybe it's not, but I tell this funny thing at most of my baptism homilies, which is a true story about the first moment when I had the, wait a minute. And I did the, you know, kind of Lord be with you moment. <laughs> and for me, it was on a business trip that I was, I missed my flight, which I do habitually, but I missed my flight and um, I had to stay overnight because there were no other flights. And there were no hotels either. So I had to stay at this kind of very seedy place, not too far from the airport. And <laughs> I just got these crazy bad vibes the moment I walked in. Like it, 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 it had this vibe of like, you know, scene from a horror movie kind of, it was just really bad. And I used, I used sure. to travel with holy water all the time and just kind of bless the rooms with holy water. But I didn't take it with me that time. And I'm like, ah, oh, I'm just going to have to, you know, just deal with the bad vibes or whatever. And then at that moment I had to wait what? hang on, I can make holy water. <laughs> and so I literally a little, in a little plastic cup, I like bless the water and bless the room. And th- that was my wait a minute moment um, <laughs> in a business trip in Atlanta in a seedy hotel room. So we all have it in different places. <laughs> that's great. Those are the best. <laughs> they really are. Well, that's beautiful. Rachel, before we um, get to our final segment here, wait, what? Uh, I definitely want you to share. Uh, I know you've done a lot of things. You obviously have this new book. Becoming wife, and we'll put it, you know, put it in the show notes so people can avail themselves. I highly recommend it. Um, but as you think about what you're up to next and how folks can keep tabs of what you're doing uh, or things you're excited about, what would some of those things be? Sure. One of the um, another book that I had come out a couple of years ago that I'm still very excited about. It's called uh, "With All Her Mind: A Call to the Intellectual Life," mm. and it's a a book of essays by various women that are in various vocations within in the Catholic Church, religious, academic, mothers that just write about you know how the intellectual life informed them. Because I think that's one of the things that that we as women really need to to kind of take hold of and be formed by by our minds. Um, the other thing too is that 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 I'm really excited about is hopefully at some point this this series that I did with Catholic TV is going to be coming out about the Eucharistic miracles that Blessed Carlo Cutis put out. And so we went through his catalog and did just kind of like a, a few episodes. I think it ended up being 10 to 12 episodes about um, those Eucharistic miracles. And then our family, the, the YouTube show Meet the Bullmans is yeah. still out there on YouTube. Meet the Bullmans on the Word on Fire Institute channel. And just so that we can understand that the family is still a source of joy and that there are still people in the world that are, that are doing that and, and trying to do it well amidst all of the pain and suffering that might come along with it, but are still trying to pursue Christ in the midst of our family. Amen. And people can get in touch on uh, rachelbullman.com. Is that? Yes. Rachelbullman.com. And then my, that's most, that's my handle on, on Instagram and Twitter, all the, all the different social media platforms. Awesome. 
Well, look, um, thank you for coming by and sharing a little bit of time with us. And, you know, my uh, prayer and blessing on you, your husband, your ministries and all of your work and that God, you know, continue to prosper everything that you're doing, particularly this newer, this newest conversation around the importance and the real depth in spousality, which I think we're just literally touching the tip of the iceberg on. There's so Mm -hmm. much more there to understand, but really want to thank you. It's a privilege to, uh, to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Now, Rachel, are you ready to play? <laughs> Wait, what? I'm ready. All right, very <laughs> as ready good. as we're I'll gonna, ever be. We're gonna we're gonna start nice and easy because I happen okay. to know, Rachel, that you are a lover of all things karaoke, and of course, <laughs> as we've been discussing, you're a lover of the church. But the connection between karaoke and the Catholic faith isn't an obvious one. However, a fascinating connection may actually exist. So, true or false? Rachel, true or false? The inventor of karaoke, Daisuke Inouye, created the first karaoke machine in the early 1970s in Kobe, Japan. He was a drummer in a band that often played in a Catholic school. In fact, it was during his time performing at Catholic school festivals that he came up with the idea of the karaoke machine. Stop it right now. Is that true or is that false? That sounds true. That sounds true. And th- these are specifically designed to sound true and actually be false. So that's what this <laughs> one is rude. actually is false. Almost all of it, all, almost all of it is true, except for the part of him actually playing in a Catholic school. This guy, <laughs> it, it, he is the inventor and he did play um, drums. He was actually not a, not a good drummer, apparently, which is why he decided to invent this machine. But uh, but no, he did not play in Catholic school. You venues. might need to get a confession after this. Do you get <laughs> I'm just asking if it's true or false. You're the one giving the answer. I think you may have to go to confession. All right. So it's okay. I'm going to give you a quarter point for that one. You're, it's, okay. it's still okay, Rachel. You're, you're in good shape. All right. Question number two. I still think you're doing great. Now, I happen to also know that like me, another one of our commonalities is you do not like the kombucha beverage, which by the way, is hugely popular. I don't know when this happened. Nor do I have any understanding of why. I think it happened, it happened. by accident, but that's fine. <laughs> it must have. It's just it, if anybody's actually tried kombucha, it's an inst. I mean, even for people with very developed palates, this is just not something to drink <laughs> at all. You probably rub it on clothes, get some stains out. I don't know, but it's not for drinking. Okay, so here we go. Question number two: The name kombucha is said to come from Japan in the fifth century, when a physician named Doctor Kombu treated the emperor with his special cha, which is the word tea. Over time, the drink became known as kombucha, which translates to Dr. Kombu's tea. That's all true, by the way. This is not a true or false question. (laughs) Okay. This is a fill-in-the-blank question. But although Dr. Kombu gave us the name, the drink itself originated more than six centuries before in this neighboring Asian country. It's a it's a big one. I can give you some hints. It's a big country. It's a. <laughs> it's not a hint. <laughs> that's a hit. Yes. I mean, is. would that be China? I don't know. Correct. Neighboring country. <laughs> correct. Correct. You are correct. It's believed to have originated in northeast China, in Manchuria, actually, around <laughs> around the year 220 BC, during the wow. Sin Dynasty. Initially, it was Super used as a, as a health Super elixir gross. and prized for its healing properties. And I'm sure it can take the scuff marks off of leather shoes as well. 
Um, but uh, apparently, there you go. That's uh, so now you're awesome. Now, see, you're back over 500 here. Great, okay, great, great, great job. Okay, final question, and you're guaranteed. Don't worry, Rachel. You're correct because this one is just whatever you decide. So here it goes. As a deacon's wife, just like you've already discussed, you had to give your assent to your husband's ordination, a step mm-hmm. that the church requires to ensure the integrity of the marriage bond, etc. If you had to create one additional requirement, which had to be approved by the deacon's wife prior to his ordination, what <clears throat> would it be? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, it had to be approved prior to his ordination. Yeah, in other words, the church has to get your permission on it prior to him <clears throat> being ordained. Hmm. Um. <laughs> that's really funny. You're gonna get me in trouble. <laughs> I think you're gonna so, get yourself in trouble. So, <laughs> so I have I have two oh, yeah. things that I would say. Wow. I would say you get extra credit. First now. of all, you can get back to a straight A on this if you get both of them. Then. <laughs> so I would say um, your assignment, like your church assignment. Like you're gonna have to get my permission to where he. Oh, was that's a good assigned. one. That's a good one. And then the second one would be how many things they can put on their calendar. So. <laughs> Nice. Like we get to set the limits on how many baptisms, how many, what weekends they get off. That could be. See, I don't find that even remotely controversial. I thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to say the requirement of of approving the pastor. That would have been (laughs) controversial. Well, I figured I could get out of that by saying like a proof, like where they get signed. Yeah, that's true. I guess that's. uh, That was least controversial way to say where they get signed. It's a proxy. Yeah. But, that, you know, and that's, and that's a serious thing because in a lot of, I mean, look, usually the way it works is that your pastor su- supports and sponsors you and then you end up getting mm-hmm. put in that parish. doesn't always work that way. And in fact, right. in L.A., uh, just using me as an example, um, when I was ordained, I was given a five-year assignment. The deacons here get five-year assignments. And then those assignments, like 99 times out of 100, just get renewed in the same parish. But there's a few right. guys that get reassigned for pastoral reasons or other reasons. And I was one of them. And I, I found out later why that was. And it, it was all, you know, good reason. They definitely needed me at this at this new parish. But um, so it doesn't always work where you're like, oh, this is the the, the guy I'm going to be with, right? Um, right. So that's a, that's a good one. Yeah. I don't know if the bishop yeah. will. <laughs> it works for me, Rachel. So um, nice work. But um, so you scored, you get with the extra credit. I think that brings you back to an A, which is awesome. It's actually a <laughs> rare feat on this show. So good job. Sweet. And uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, once again, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Rachel. And if, thank you. And if you're hearing our voices, that means it is time to follow the show, time to subscribe, time to share this episode with a friend, maybe somebody who is considering matrimony or who can at least see it somewhere in the distance is something they want to understand a little bit more about it. They can come in contact with uh, this conversation and be referred to all the great work that Rachel has done, especially with her new book, Becoming Wife. We will see you all again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.